Hey, what's up? We're back, Barefoot Baseball Podcast, which is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the absolute best in supporting your men's grooming needs. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools and they obsess over their technology developments to provide you with the very best in men's grooming. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. As an exclusive offer to my listeners, Manscaped is offering 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code BPB at manscaped.com. Now, Manscaped hooked me up with their Perfect Package 3.0 kit, which includes their third generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 3.0, which includes a ceramic blade to reduce any of those annoying grooming accidents, thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. It has a built in LED light and is also waterproof. Uh, they also included their anti chafing deodorant, which is great for anybody that doesn't want to chafe, and their uh, toner, which smells delightful. They threw in a travel bag, which is great for traveling or storing. Uh, they also threw in some Manscaped boxers, which are uh, really comfortable. So definitely recommend checking those out. The uh, job that that lawnmower 3.0 does is outstanding. So check it out, 20% off free shipping by using the code BPB when you visit manscaped.com. That's 20% off free shipping at manscaped.com with the code BPB. Other ways to support the channel, head into the description box below and click on Patreon. When you do that, you can subscribe to be a monthly donor. Uh, with that, different levels between like five and $25 a month. You can get a Glen Karen glass etched with the Barrel Proof Baseball logo. You can get the uh, Irish whiskey ceramic coin or the bourbon ceramic coin. I have a bunch of them up there. They're fun to collect. Collect these ones. Uh, if you don't want to subscribe monthly, you could always just email me at barrelproofbaseball at yahoo.com and I can get you some of those. All right. Uh, next one in the link in the uh, description below, check out the link for the Amazon store. Okay. You can buy stuff from Amazon, which we all do. Uh, it's just stuff that I like because again, this is all about me. So check it out. Um, there's books, there's coffee items. There's uh, barware because we like barware type stuff and, and drink a lot of coffee. So check those out. That helps support the channel. Um, and then go check out our friends at Walkoffs and Whiskey. They've got an Instagram account. They've got a website, walkoffsandwhiskey.com. They've got shirts. Um, they're doing a great thing. They're combining the two greatest things in America, whiskey and baseball. So check those guys out. Really like what they're doing. Uh, today's guest is New York Yankees catcher, Kyle Higashioka. Uh, Kyle was a seventh round draft pick out of Edison High School in 2008 by the Yankees, who, who are. Uh, they are the only team he's played with. So uh, he's been with the organization for a long time and uh, it's the only organization he's known. So it's pretty cool for Kyle to have been with them for, for that long. Actually, fun fact, he said that the only person that's been with him longer is Brett Gardner since I think he said 04. So um, check out this interview with Kyle. My interest with him was I was uh, Kyle, one of Kyle's high school coaches for three years. So I got an opportunity to see Kyle for you know his upbringing from you know, 15 or 16 years old. And, and so it's been a lot of fun to watch him grow into the role that he's in now. The conversation was great, went a lot of different ways. You know, the ups and downs of his career, where he's at now, adjustments he's had to make. Um, we got to talk a little catching at the end, which is definitely fun for me. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation with Kyle. Um, really excited for him and really proud of his accomplishments and his perseverance to continue playing through some injuries and some tough times to get where he's at. And Kyle is, 
as humble as he's always been. Um, and I really was grateful for his time and the conversation that we got to have. So I hope you enjoy it. Make sure you subscribe to the channel below. And here's Kyle Higashioka. All right, Kyle Higashioka, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tony. So, all right, seventh round draft pick. We're going to start at the beginning. Seventh round draft pick out of Edison, 2008 by the Yankees. Um, you were committed to Cal. And what was that process like for you, just in terms of, you know, deciding of going to Cal or signing with the Yankees? So, for me, I think it was more of, um, like, what, what would it take – signing bonus wise to for it to be worth it for me to forego college because I, I, I figured I'd be okay either way. Uh, my grades were good enough to where I knew, you know, college was a fine option for me, but also I thought I was ready to go to pro ball. Um, you know, if it, if it was kind of financially worth it, cause obviously to give up college at that time coming out of high school, you, you, you kind of have to be like set up for a little while um, in order to, to just make that work. Um, so I think we, we told every team the same number. Uh, most teams said like, you know, good luck, <laughs> good luck in college. Yeah. And uh, there are a couple of teams at the end, the Yankees and the Indians that were, were pretty interested. Um, and then uh, obviously on draft day, uh, first day was the first six rounds. Uh, nobody took me. And so I kind of thought like, okay, like this is what I expected. I expected to go to college. And then, uh, Dave Keith, my scout with the Yankees, he, he called me up and he was like, he was like, Hey, uh, you still willing to sign? Uh, and I was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and he's like, all right, we're going to take you. And, uh, so, uh, first, first pick on the second day, which was the seventh round, um, they uh they took me um so what was how long was that decision you know is that pretty quick for you once you once you found out you got drafted and, and you'd obviously talk to dave you know you had your number in mind was that pretty quick that you were able to make that decision to get out and start playing yeah um the decision was easy because mm -hmm. i mean you know everything kind of lined up how how i had hoped but back then the process was if you sign for over slot money you had to get it. The team had to get it approved by the commissioner's office. And it was like, it was some sort of domino effect where mm -hmm. one team had to start that process. And then once the commissioner's office approved their request, like all the other teams who had over slot guys lined up, uh, ended up kind of their requests pouring in. They, they basically, you know, said, you know, you got to prove this guy because you did that guy. Yeah. And that year, I think the Yankees signed almost everybody for overslot. Wow. That's not bad. Because <laughs> they, good... they were putting a lot of money into the farm system. So it was like yeah. they're really trying to build it up. So you're coming out of high school, you know, you're in Southern California and you're off to Florida to start your pro career. Like what's that transition like for you coming out of high school, you know, being around 
a lot of different players from different places, you know, different languages, different experience levels. You know, what was that transition like for you? So it was, it was definitely tough transitioning from two days a week playing to six days a week. Mm -hmm. um, so we had Sundays off and rookie ball, but I mean, still six days a week, it was like you're playing every day and yeah. my body wasn't ready for it. Um, I remember just thinking like, wow, this is like a lot tougher than I thought it would be just because I'm, I'm like, I've never played every single day before. Um, and so I, that was a kind of a wake up call first year. I knew I had to get a lot stronger. Uh, I had to work, you know, hard in the off season to like try to catch up to the guys who are more like adult, like, uh, with me being 18. But one of the things that benefited me was the Spanish classes in high school. Yeah. Like taking three years of Spanish and then going straight into pro ball and being immersed uh, with a lot of Spanish speakers. I kind of carried that through and it helped me a lot. Cause then I, now I, I, I speak pretty good Spanish. Uh, mm. I wouldn't say it's like fluent, but it's probably like equivalent to a young child, like a toddler <laughs> or, or maybe a little more advanced early, uh, late toddler. Yeah. Late toddler. Yeah. No, and I, especially I'm, I'm assuming, you know, as a catcher, like being able to communicate with guys that are speaking different languages, especially the amount of Spanish speakers that are in the systems. I mean, that's a huge advantage for, for a catcher, you know, particularly. Yeah. And it kind of endears yourself a little bit to the guys who speak Spanish. Cause it's like, they know you're putting in an effort to, to learn their culture and, and to, um, you know, just be accommodating. Cause I mean, English is a tough language to learn. So, mm -hmm. um, some guys, some guys can do it. Some guys have a really tough time at it. So it just, it just helps being able to speak, uh, Spanish. I've certainly seen that where just the effort that you put in to try and speak Spanish is it, it goes a long way, you know, because again, you're getting a lot of players that are young that are outside of their, you know, their home and some of them for the first time and in a very different environment. So that's definitely, that goes a long way, I think, with players that are that are trying to navigate their way through this just like you are. Yeah, it, it definitely it definitely helps because, I mean, they're like thousands of miles away from their mm -hmm. families and what, what they know. So um, it definitely really helps, especially like just building relationships. Yeah. Would, would you say your biggest adjustment was like the strength training itself in terms of, you know, getting stronger and being able to hand, handle that workload that increases? Yeah, I think it was the, the physical nature of the game because yeah. I wasn't like a, I mean, you probably noticed when you were coaching me back in high school, but I wasn't like the biggest like weightlifter or anything. I wasn't, I, I, I always felt like I was at a slight disadvantage physically yeah. in high school. Um, I mean, there's a ton of guys that were way stronger than me, but I learned that like, you know, I had to, I had to really step up that part of my game in order to compete at this level. Cause it, it can put you at a huge disadvantage if you're not physically able to compete with everyone else. True. Um, going into, so when now you've, you've got yourself into pro ball, like you've, you know, got a couple of years under your belt. And I mean, one thing I'll say drafted in 08. And now being with the same organization for 13 years, I mean, I can't imagine there's very many guys throughout baseball that are in that same position that have been with one organization from the time they were drafted 13 years ago till right now. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, Gar Brett Gardner, uh, he's, he's, yeah. he's been with us since 2004. So, oh, wow. Drafted, 
uh, drafted and signed by the Yankees in 2004 and never played for a different team. So I think, I think there is something a little different about the Yankees. Um, I think they just, you know, they, they, they seem to do things right. And it's, it's a really good place to, to be, you know, as long as you're working hard and and playing well. So Mm -hmm. I think it's, um, you know, it's easy for guys to want to stay in the same place for that long. Sure. Yeah. That makes whole sense. I can, I can definitely understand that. Um, so you get in 2008, go get a couple years in and you start into like 2012, a couple injuries, you know, you go through 2012 where you had 44 games, 2013, you had seven games, 2014, you had 17 games. So what was that like? That's three, three years of, you know, obviously with some difficulty with, with, injuries and fighting that. I mean, what was that period like for you in terms of handling that, you know, just mentally and physically trying to get yourself back to playing? Yeah. So 2012, I didn't really, that was kind of the, I think the beginning of them realizing I wasn't really hitting as well as they had hoped. And so in 2012, I went from high down to low a mid season and, you know, that was definitely a tough one because, you know, when you sign, you're like, think that it's going to be, you know, I'm going to just keep moving up and I'm going to go to the big leagues. Uh, there's a certain timetable. And like, if that doesn't happen, you think that like, oh, this is in huge jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was definitely tough. And then the, in 13, I, I actually became a backup for oh no 12 12 i went up and down from double a back to high a and i was actually gary's backup in high a um and then 13 i was a backup in double a for john ryan murphy and that's when i had tommy john so i only played the first month of the season i hit well i mean for 25 at bats or whatever but uh, i had tommy john was coming back from that in 14, broke my, broke my thumb right when I was about to get sent back out to um, AA, I think. And so that kept me out for another eight weeks. And so then that basically threw away all of 14. And then I, I was able to go to the fall league for as a taxi squad player. And, and I, I hit really well, but again, it was only like 25 at bats or so. Um, but that, that was kind of like the turning point of like, you know, post-surgery, I was like, okay, I, I can still do this. I just need to like really get my, my act together. Were there, I mean, through that period with the injuries and stuff, were you, was there ever doubts that, you know, like you said, you were finally like you were hitting and you were feeling good. Like were there, was there doubts creeping in at that point before that? Yeah. I mean, I was taking like college classes, uh, yeah. you know, when I was, they let me rehab at home and, during during the whole rest of the 2013 season and so I was taking like classes and stuff you know just in case it it didn't work out with baseball um and when you're out for so long you just like can't help but but just think like you know let the mind wander yeah maybe maybe I'm not gonna come back from this because I had a few setbacks too so it was like you know I had to I had to kind of work through some stuff and uh but i mean in the end it, it ended up being totally fine so 15 16 come around you know 
get full seasons in, played 100 games each year pretty much. And then 2017, um, you know, didn't have – played, I think, 21 games that year in the minor leagues. And then you got your first call up in 17, right? Mm-hmm. What is – What's that like? Like what everybody wants to know, like what's the, what's that phone call? Like, what is that like being, or, or in person, whatever it was like, what is that like being told you're going to the big leagues for the first time, especially after at that point, you know, nine, 10 years in the minor leagues. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I had a, I had a great year in 2016 mm-hmm. and that was kind of like my breakout year. And, and the, the defensive part had always been there but it was like always the bat that was like, okay, like if you could only hit, like, you know, you would be a guy. And so I finally hit in 16. And at the end of the year, I was like, I was like, Oh, like I'm, I'm in a great spot. And they put me on the 40 man. And I was like, you know, you kind of get the feeling like this is, you know, this, there's a, there's a really good chance that this might happen in the next year or so. And it was, I mean, it was really surprising that it happened in like the first week of the season in 17, but me, um, my wife, Elise and I, we were out to dinner in Buffalo and we had, we had just played our first game of the year. Cause like the first four days got snowed out. And so, you know, I, I just played, we were out to dinner and then she got a text from uh, Mark Trumbo's wife because the Yankees were in Baltimore and she was like, she was like, Hey, uh, Gary just came out of the game or something. I think he, he might've like hurt himself. And then like immediately we just like, I think our, our stomachs just dropped like, Oh my gosh, like something could happen here. And then I think five minutes later, I got a call from the AAA manager saying I'm going to New York. So like our food hadn't even come yet. And we basically just like asked for the check as soon as the food got there. I didn't even eat a single bite. We paid and then immediately left. But it was it was just like one of the craziest uh, feelings I think I've ever had. What's that? So you I mean, what's your first day? I mean, what's it like? Like you get to Yankee Stadium and like now what? Like you're just there and then what do you do? Like how's it changed? Yeah. So I got to Baltimore and it was kind of cool because uh, I had been working out for the past few off seasons with um, Trumbo. Hmm. So we, we became pretty good friends and, you know, he would always tell me like, like, Hey, like you're, you're, you're a big leaguer. Like you're going to be, you're going to be there someday. Like I can just see it in your, your swing and your work hmm. ethic and whatnot. And I was like, you know, like, okay, like, well, let's we'll see what happens. But it was cool. Cause when I got called up, I went to Baltimore and he was there. He was like, you know, when I, first got on the field for BP he was like waiting for me to come out of the dugout and uh it was it was just you know really cool to to uh have him there for that mm-hmm. and uh but yeah when we got to New York I made my debut on the then the ninth inning of the home opener and I think I like I almost missed almost every single pitch uh just because like the nerves were almost sure. crippling and but that was really helpful because I think Girardi wanted me to get in there mm. and get like a little taste before, cause I was starting like the next day with another guy, Jordan Montgomery, who was making his major league debut. And I mean, we, we both ended up having a pretty good game. I didn't get any hits, but uh, you know, I caught well and we won. So it was like perfect, perfect start to, uh, 
to the big leagues. You, yeah. never, you never want to lose as a catcher, at least. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. You're okay. So speaking of you didn't get any hits, you started out your career over 22 in the big leagues. Yeah. And you get your first your first knock off of David Price. It's a home run, you know, Yankee Stadium. And I, I have to I have to imagine, like from a fan's perspective, like you're that Yankees Red Sox, you know, in Yankee Stadium's gotta be something just a little bit different, like a little bit elevated. So how's that first hit feel, especially a homer off David Price? Yeah, I mean it was it was pretty surreal. I I tell us I I tell this to the guys all the time when they like ask about the the streak as they call it. because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had to sit on like an O for eighteen for an entire mm. off season. And like <laughs> I'm like, am I ever gonna get like a major league hit? Uh <laughs> so you know, I was getting I went up again in eighteen and I was like feeling good at the plate, even though I had a horrible time in AAA before that, um, at, at the time I got called up, I was feeling pretty good. So I was like, okay, like this is, I think, I think we're in a good spot right now. And I wasn't supposed to play at all versus the Red Sox, but Romine hurt. He like tweaked his hammy. And I mean, luckily for us, cause we were already down to two catchers. Um, you know, it wasn't like a, a an actual strain it was just like I think he he like tweaked it but he came out early enough to just like not really damage it but then I ended up starting Sunday night baseball against the Red Sox with with uh Severino pitching so it was like I was already pretty pretty nervous just because the Red Sox that year were like insane Mm -hmm. and it was like you know we were it, we were trading off like getting our ass kicked versus kicking their ass. Mm-hmm. And so it was obviously like a lot of pressure. And I remember we were just like, you know, for some reason we, the guys love just crushing David Price. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, it was like, all right, we got Price on the mound. Like we're gonna, you know, we got to do some damage today. And, mm-hmm. uh, I remember he struck me out the first at bat and it was, you know, he, he pitched me really well, but he had like this, he had like this backdoor cutter that he kept wanting to go to, to like every single righty with two strikes. And then second at bat, he happened to just like pull one right down the middle and it just like went straight into my bat path. And at that point, like I had so much pent up anxiety that I, I knew if I could just make contact in fair territory, it was going to be a homer. Mm-hmm. And uh so then I was like I made contact and I saw it was like gonna be a home run and I was like uh almost in uh like a dream dream state round in the bases I remember watching that and I the camera kept zooming in on your face and you know I'm, I'm stoked for you you know I'm super excited watching this <laughs> and I, it kept zooming in on you it looked like you're trying so hard not to smile I'm like man I don't know I, I think I'd be grinning ear to ear right now you know if that, <laughs> was, if that was happening <laughs> Yeah. So, I'm normally not a smile guy, like yeah. hitting homers, but, sure. um, I was, I was trying my best not to. And then, and then, and then I got the, the silent treatment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the streak, as they say, now you've got your next two hits or homers. And I mean, it's nine, nine guys in major league baseball history that have had their first three <laughs> hits be home runs. Like that's pretty cool. Like, 
what's I mean, what's the what's the streak story like? <laughs> well, I guess it was a good way to atone for the over twenty two to start. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, next game I was like over. Oh, it was Anibal Sanchez. He was he was kind of tough on us that game, and then uh, I think Newcomb started because I played like five days in a row because Romine was his hamstring was was bugging him so he needed like a week off so I ended up playing five days in a row which was which was actually really good for me hitting wise because I could get into a little bit more of a rhythm it was a little easier on me um so we faced Newcomb and I uh I hit the home run there and I was you know obviously very very pumped but you know I was like that could happen you know Mm -hmm. whatever and then the next day we faced Teheran on a day game. And I remember like the 2-0 fastball hitting it off the bat. And I was like, I saw it sailing out over the fence. And I I, I was like, man, is this like even this even possible? Like, <laughs> am I now I was like, am I ever not gonna hit a home run? That's <laughs> <laughs> so all I'm gonna do from now on. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, that one I I think I I couldn't help but but smile because it was sure. like it, it it felt so ridiculous to me that I like couldn't get a hit and then I and then after I couldn't get a hit that wasn't a homer you've had so I mean again now you've got some more at bats under under your belt you know coming up to like this point in time but you know like last year you had a three homer game against Toronto you had you know homer in the um the ALDS against Snell to tie the game in the sixth you know like the, you've hit some you've had some memorable you know, home runs to say the least. I mean, some, some big moments and, you know, is there a, is there a moment in in terms of that, that sticks out to you or anything like that? Um, probably the playoff Homer, you know, it's just like, especially being in New York, the, the playoffs mean so much, like it's not, it's not enough just to make the playoffs. Like you're, you know, the, the goal every single year is to win the world series. So, um, I know it's just so important to, to perform in the playoffs and, you know, there's been guys that, you know, if they don't perform in the playoffs, they, they look for somebody else. Um, even if they're, you know, good regular season players. So it's like, it's just, um, it was just pretty cool to, to be in that big spot and be able to deliver. That's awesome, man. That's, I mean, it, there's been so many, it just seems to me like from a, you know, somebody who's followed you in your career and, and seeing some of those moments, how, you know, you finally get the call up and you get, you know, your first knocks a homer and then you, you know, it's three in a row and then you have a three homer game and a playoff homer. I mean, those are some, some really cool moments from a, you know, a fan's perspective. And I'm, I'm sure just putting, trying to you know, put myself in your shoes, like after that journey, that's gotta be pretty cool. Yeah, I, I definitely am grateful for kind of having some more memorable moments, I guess. Um, you know, it's 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 pretty cool. But I mean, I also try to tone it down and yeah. <laughs> keep it keep it business while I'm out there. Sure. Yeah, it's I think from a, a fan's perspective, it's like it's it's really cool to see. But then it's, you know, once you get past those things, it's like your first game, you know, it's the ninth inning and you guys got a big lead. And I'm sure you're it's your first day in the big leagues and you're unbelievably nervous. And then, you know, that nervousness probably wears off a little bit. And, you know, you're now you're playing the game. Yeah. Besides. So oh, good. 
No, I was just. Oh yes. So, so outside of, you know, those types of things, like for me type of fans uh, look into it, you mentioned 2016, was there in your offensive production that year, was there any sort of swing change that you made or anything that you tried to like refocus on in terms of what you were doing offensively to, to make those improvements? Yeah. So I kind of went a little bit against the grain that year. Our, our kind of organizational philosophy was, was more of like the um, old, old school, mm-hmm. kind of almost like a, like a Charlie Lau type, you know, mm-hmm. create backspin, low line drives. But for me, that just, it just didn't work. Like, I mean, I, I had, I had bought into that and done it for several years and it just wasn't, wasn't working for me. So I kind of, I had to take a, a leap of faith and and almost go back to what I initially believed, which was more of the Ted Williams style of, you know, I don't know if you've read the science of hitting oh, yeah. um, his book. I read it yeah. like seven or eight times in high school, but um, you know, just like matching the plane of the pitch with your bat mm-hmm. path, a uh, slight uppercut, you know, just to give you the most margin for error. Cause I mean, if you, if, if you're matching the plan of the pitch, you've got like, you know, so much room to, to be slightly off and still have a decent result. Like your flush would be a, like a gapper or a, like a line drive somewhere. If you miss over the ball, you're hitting like a top spin one hopper through the infield. And if you miss under it, it's a, it's a homer. So mm-hmm. um, kind of that whole thing of, of, using more of the, the physics aspect of, of, of hitting, I guess the, the science of hitting yeah. is what the book's called. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Yeah. It's so that, yeah. that's kind of the big adjustment I made. And I actually was just trying to hit 300. I was like, well, I just, I just want to have a respectable average. Like I don't, mm-hmm. if I get to double digit homers, I'll be really happy. Cause I've never mm-hmm. done that. And then I ended up hitting like 21 yeah. and and I was like, you know, it was, that's when I knew that like, this is, this is what I need to do from now on. Is that something that's difficult to, for you? Not necessarily for you, like personally, but just in general, because there's, I mean, there's a lot of different thoughts out there right now about hitting and, you know, you get, you can get onto uh, the hitting Twitter stuff and, and you get lost in there because yeah. everybody's going to want to defend or, you know, support one way or the other of like hey this is we want to be short to the ball but we want to create some some space and create some length and and some margin for error like you said by by matching the plane of the pitch like is that hard to go against the grain and and really recognize that whatever you're doing is not working regardless of what the thought is and you need to make a change yeah because i mean it's tough because you could you could keep doing what you're doing and take this you know, the safe route and mm-hmm. kind of think like, well, I've been just having like bad years. I just need to like, you know, work harder at the same thing or swing at better pitches or, or just like, you know, get luckier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think you just, and there's a multitude of different, Every, every every single guy on our team has a different way of thinking about the swing. So there's, there's definitely nothing absolute in terms of what you need to think about. Mm. Like, um, you know, another hitter could have, 
you know, trying to be get to the same point that I am, but think totally opposite. Like they could be thinking that they're going straight down to the ball, but in reality, like their game swing is, you know, up through the ball or whatever. Um, but if that's what they need to do to be successful, then, then that's what they need to think. And that's what they need to work on or whatever. I mean, A-Rod did it for years where he was like, you know, everything was this down through the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you look at a swing on video and it's like, well, that's, he's not swinging down. Like he's, mm-hmm. he's got a nice, you know, relatively level bat path. And, you know, that's why he hit like 700 homers or whatever. Um, I think that's it. I think, that's, but yeah, people try, I think that's an issue I think right now with, this whole like hitting revolution that's going on is like you've gotten you've gone from a place of let's match the plane to, of the pitch to like almost an absurdity of swinging straight uphill to just create the almighty launch angle and you know like that's in reality that's not what most hitters are thinking like most hitters are not thinking about <laughs> some of the things that are being you know overly pushed in terms of like hitting people teaching hitting right now and like you said, your thought might be going from short A to B just to get to the contact point. And that's not what's actually happening when you break down their video. And it's really easy to look at video and go, well, that's not what you're doing. But you don't know what's going on in a hitter's head. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, I think now our hitting coaches do a great job of kind of realizing that everyone's thinking something different. Sure. And, you know, attempting to best speak their language to get them to where they need to be regardless of like what philosophy they subscribe to because mm-hmm. that's not the important part the important part is the results so yeah. um it's definitely you know and i think uh mo- moderation is probably the best route you know because mm-hmm. the guys that swing straight uphill they're they're typically pretty easy to spot and pretty easy to take advantage of with the high four seamer, um, you know, and if you swing straight downhill, most of those guys aren't in the big leagues, but Mm -hmm. you know, if they do, it's like, you can get them out in front with off speed and whatnot, but it's just, um, you know, I think the best hitters are kind of like not too extreme one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with you. I don't, I don't think you can go too far one or the other and, and you've got to be able to have some adjustability in there. I think mm-hmm. if you only subscribe to one versus the other there, you, you start to lose that adjustability. I mean, if your swing's geared towards being able to handle a sinker in, you know, with that kind of bat path, you're going to get eaten up by some of these guys that are throwing, you know, 160 miles an hour with crazy spin at the top of the zone. Like you're not getting there and, yeah. you know, and vice versa. Like if you're trying to really just stay flat and handle the top of the zone, you're not going to get to anything at the bottom with somebody that can throw sinker sliders. Yeah. One of the so. questions I would have is in terms of, even more so like catching there's really been a progression with catching i think over the past probably since you've been in pro i would imagine since you've signed there's probably been a shift with things that are taught with catching you know especially with receiving um Mm -hmm. can you go into some of those like little things that you've seen change over the years yeah i mean well first of all when i first signed it was all about like blocking and throwing Mm -hmm. receiving i don't even think was a I think it was just, it was like the, the year I signed was maybe like the first couple of years that they even like discovered that it was 
beneficial to be mm. a good pitch framer. It was always more of the eye test, like, oh, this guy yeah. catches the ball pretty good. Um, but so they just started to try to quantify it. And then that, that evolved over the years to where in 2015, the organization um, our, our farm director, Gary Denbo, and our catching coordinator, Josh Paul, they kind of came together because I was already a minor league backup in, in 13 and 14, so, which minor league backup catcher, um, it's a tough road from there. Like you don't, you don't have a lot of opportunity and, and it's just, it's, it's extremely tough to dig yourself out of that like hole. So they decided to bump me down a level to high A in order to play every day because of my receiving numbers. Because, um, you know, I had perennially good receiving numbers every year. So they said, you know, this guy is still worth something, um, even if he's not swinging the bat great. So that's when I really realized how much they valued receiving as if they're willing to make, you know, a guy who had never hit in his career um, a, a starter just because of the receiving numbers. And so now it's obviously mainstream where, you know, we, we all know how, how much of an impact receiving can have on a game and, and the supposed, um, you know, win probabilities and that stuff. Um, but I mean, over the years, I, I haven't changed much with my stance or anything. The only thing I did recently, which actually led to my best defensive year ever, was I totally banged my ready stance. Mm -hmm. So I have no more, you know, sitting high, yeah, like your butt you up know, and lean knees forward. at 90 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. I totally eliminated that because, um, you know, we kind of realized that I can just block from my relaxed stance mm -hmm. and, um, and I can throw from there too. I mean, it just took a little adjusting too, but I, I actually threw way better than I used to. And I blocked way better than I used to. And my receiving stayed the same. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was kind of the, the best of both worlds. I, I think I remember my, one of my first days with the Dodgers, I mean, I sat down with our catching coordinator and we started going over catching stuff. And, you know, that was one of the things we had talked about was like uh, minimizing, at least minimizing that, that ready stance just purely because I mean it if you think about it like it really is an an unathletic position to be in like you're yeah you're up a little bit more and you're like you said you got your knees at 90 and and we both said like we've taught that for years you know that's something that it's like we did as catchers and you teach it as a catcher and you know you just carry that on but you know you're watching guys boxing pitches because they're in a weird a, a very weird like setup where they can't get to specific locations especially and yeah. so I've seen a lot of catchers obviously trying to bang that, that big adjustment from like a primary into a traditional secondary stance. Yeah. And that was, that was pretty big for me, which was, um, you know, cause you're, you're so high up there and, mm -hmm. and then it, it started to hurt like my hips too. Mm -hmm. Um, just because like I was so wide and like mm -hmm. tried to get, you know, I tried to like keep my butt down, but like be wider and more ready. Yeah. Um, that we, I kind of felt like we needed to make an adjustment. Do you, do you think that there's been a big adjustment 
with the uh, the use of technology or or the reliance on numbers, you know, to like I said, to quantify those receiving metrics. Um, I mean, I think more teams um, are are have a system to quantify it now, mm. which is I think I think it's good because I mean, as long as your your system is quantifying it relatively accurately. But I think it's good because you can really see how you're benefiting the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it just, I think, I think the more things are, are quantified, the more information you're able to get and the, the more potential you have to, to like truly improve. Um, I think the game can't be played by the computer, but it's like, it's a very important tool to make sure that you're constantly performing at your best level. Yeah. Those numbers aren't lying. And no, and you're, and you're, and your sample size is, you know, it's huge as a guy that's played for as long as you have, it's a big sample size. And so those numbers aren't, they're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you, do you think that, um, the, the evolution into, you know, the, the change in, in, receiving or framing has been because it, it seemed for a long time it was like this guy's losing strikes and now it's it's flipped to now he's gaining strikes you know you're doing it's not about turning it's not about not turning strikes into balls it's more about turning balls into strikes you know and I think you see a lot of videos of guys who potentially have taken it a little too far with some of the glove moves <laughs> you know like it's getting a little a little absurd you know, and, and, and not subtle at all. And, you know, it, it, cause it was, for, I mean, it was always stick, you know, it was stick pitches and expand the zone as the game goes on. And now it's like, Hey, we're going to mm -hmm. work. We're going to start working from pitch one and we're going to start moving pitches, you know, and, but there's definitely got some absurdity out there with the amount of movement that's happening. Yeah. Uh, that I think, I, I think that cause it's all still relative. Mm -hmm. So like everybody can't be just gaining strikes. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, it's all based on the umpire's um, probability of a called strike. Mm -hmm. So there's like the real strike zone. And then there's a circle where like the umpire calls a strike, you know, 50% of the time or, or more. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, guys who are manipulating the ball like if if most of the league is getting better at the low pitch that kind of like lowers that strike probably like the the bottom of the zone it lowers the bottom of the zone almost in terms of your strike probability but i mean sometimes i think if i'm going against a guy who's like really moving the ball a ton and not great at it it almost makes me look better to the umpire because I'm, I'm more of the mindset of like, I want to present the ball well to them. Um, and, and my, my whole strategy has always been like, don't lose anything in the zone and present the ball well so that you'll get the benefit of the doubt on the borderline pitches. Yeah. And like, I don't really, you know, I don't really get like pitches that are like a 1% strike probability because it's just like, that's not, 
that's not what my style is geared towards. It's towards mm -hmm. like getting everything in the zone and most of the stuff on the borderlines and cumulative cumulatively that ends up in, you know, typically like a positive score at the end of the game. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think there's a huge place for not losing strikes, making sure strikes are called strikes. And like that 1%, that's, a, that's just a missed call. And, and I see some of the pitches that are called strikes and as a, catching guy myself like I tend to give more blame to the umpire for missing it than credit to the catcher for doing an incredible job of you know tricking him and I think that's maybe flipped a little bit you know with the the mainstream thought process of you know what a great job the catcher did like no that pitch is called a ball 99 out of 100 times he just missed the call <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah I mean over the years I've had you know great success as a supposed pitch framer but mm -hmm. my my strategy has never been like I'm trying to fool this guy on like these mm -hmm. terrible looking pitches it was it's just always been like if I present the ball well enough I'll get more borderline pitches than I don't get and the borderline ones are like there's a there's a ton of borderline pitches every single mm -hmm. game so if mm -hmm. you just kind of you know add a few of those here and there and and just they keep adding up and and it ends up being, um, you know, a positive score. Mm -hmm. Keep keep the 50-50 pitches in your favor and flip the 60-40 in your favor. Mm -hmm. where, do you, where do you see, I mean, with receiving having become such a big thing, you know, where do you see it going in, in the sense that, you know, it, it seems that in the near future, not too far down the road, there's going to be an automated strike zone. I mean, it, at some point it's going to happen. I, I, I just feel like, They've gone, they've gotten into so much tech from that perspective. Like it's, and even umpires have said they, they, they think that at some point in the near future, it's going to go to that, you know, if, if, and when that happens, how do you think catching overall is going to be affected? Is that turn into changing the catchers? Um, you know, what you can do, like what your strengths are as a catcher, does that turn back into a, you know, block and throw first, or do you put somebody back there that can really hit if receiving really no longer matters, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I hope, I hope it doesn't come to that Me too. while I'm still playing, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but I mean, I'm always just like, Oh, you gotta make sure I hit <laughs> just in case they do that. Dang. And um, then they don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, you know, obviously throwing and blocking are still important. Um, you know, they're not, you can't just have a guy that's going to give up like eight free bags a game. Yeah. Um, so you still need to be proficient at blocking and throwing. And um, the, the knee down stance is like, I think it's like great for blocking guys mm -hmm. are, I think I've seen guys start now blocking easier than ever. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, and then blocking out of my relaxed stance is the same. Like, I don't even, I don't even go down if the ball is directly in front of me, I just put my glove down. Um, mm -hmm. And as long as I center the ball up, it just hits me in the chest. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, I, I kind of see if that happens, it'll just be like, you know, you got to put some, somebody that hits back there. Yeah. I hope it doesn't happen. I, I think I would, <laughs> I think that would be bad for so many reasons. Yeah, it's just one of the little nuances of the game that uh, I think it would be a shame if we lose. 
Yeah, I, I'm with you 100%. I would hate to see that happen. When when you're when you're preparing to catch, um, the the process for you personally of getting into like the other team's scouting reports, and obviously you know everybody has people who will collect data and present it to you. But how much you know what what is your process like going through scouting reports? You know, and how much of that is dictated off of the other team's weakness versus your pitcher's strengths? It just depends on the pitcher. Mm. So, um, you know, de depending on who you, who you catch, some guys are best only working toward to their strengths, um, almost irrespective of the hitter's weakness. And then other guys are more, you know, the guys who can do more mm -hmm. as far as command and executing pitches in different locations. Those are the guys who are more geared towards the hitter's weaknesses so, um, you know, like a guy like Granky comes to mind where he just, he just picks apart hitters weaknesses, mm -hmm. you know, no matter what he, he adapts to them. And then, you know, a guy like Kershaw is going to go with his strengths, like, you know, 90% of the time. Um, but I, you know, for me, I, you know, we have heat maps. I study the heat maps of the hitters. I cross-reference those with the video. Um, just to make sure that that what the information that they present is correct in my mind. Um, usually there's no discrepancies, but I just I just do it to make sure. And, and because the video will help solidify the information in my mind so that when I'm out there, I don't really have to think about it so much. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, we before the game, the the pitcher and I will talk it over and go over the game plan. If he has something different to say. We'll make sure we straighten it out before you go out there. Yeah. I, I think the video, I think matching video with what you're seeing in terms of like the heat maps or the numbers or anything is, is huge. And, and even, even umpire stuff. I mean, when you start to get accessibility to umpires information, you know, where they're missing the majority of their pitches, you know, I think you start seeing catchers looking into that stuff more, especially for, you know, taking advantage of some of the things that they can do with their framing now. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we have access to that too. So, um, you know, it's not a huge part of the game, but it could yeah. possibly give you a little edge. Yeah. I think especially if the pitchers, um, pitch characteristics match up, you know, potentially with, you know, some, somewhere, I mean, if you got a guy throwing a heavy sinker and that guy misses a lot of pitches on that, you know, inside corner to right, he's getting into the slot and he just doesn't get a good view. I mean, maybe that changes your angle that you set up at or something, but yeah. yeah. What, uh, what advice would you give to a young catcher right now? You know, I would say, I guess to a young catcher, I might, I might just say, you know, just learn, learn, learn the master, the fundamentals of the game and then learn yourself as best as you can. And then, and then learn how to adapt yourself to be the best player possible, because it doesn't really matter what a coach tells you to do. If they could be completely wrong about how to improve your game, like you and that coach, like, isn't going to stay with you for your entire career. Like, you know, you were my coach in high school, but you didn't mm -hmm. go with me to pro ball. Yeah. So like I had no, to deal with another coach telling me something else. So it's like, you're never going to have 
I mean, unless you're in the big leagues for a long time and that same coach is with you, you're never going to have a coach there for you every single step of the way. So it's going to be up to you to learn yourself and how to improve and to implement that. I think that's so huge for players just because like exactly what you just said, like you're from your perspective, like you're, you, you're playing for that coach at that point in time, especially amateur players and they're yeah. helping you and you're playing for them and you're moving on to somebody else, you know? And, and for us, even in minor league coaching, we're constantly, you know, having to remind ourselves, like we're not giving, if, if you're playing for us in rookie ball, I'm not giving you the one thing that all of a sudden is going to turn you into a big leaguer. It's like, it's a collection of everybody around. So I think for coaches, it's like, you know, offer up what you can and understand that you're going to help this guy while he's there. And if you, you know, hopefully have the opportunity to watch him, you know, push on in his career, like you hope that something that you provided them, they take with them, but now it's, you know, yeah, you can be a resource for those guys, but at the same time, like essentially you're, you're just a piece of the puzzle and you're not like the ultimate piece. Yeah. I mean, one of my best catching coaches ever, uh, Josh Paul, mm -hmm. uh, we're still close to this day, but um, I remember he, it was in 2015. I was having a lot of trouble throwing to second. Like my throws were horrible. And he recommended like doing the pivot throw kind mm -hmm. of, you know, not taking the first step with your right foot, just pivoting on your right foot and throwing to second. And so I did it, um, obviously, because I respect him a lot. And, you know, I respect what he has to say. And I, I tried it for a week and I was like still throwing bad. I, I, uh, my arm was killing me because I wasn't like using my legs as much. Mm -hmm. And so like then me and the catching coach in high, we, we went out to the field to throw to bases. And I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try the other way. Because like, you know, I, I really think that the other way is, I can do it. I've just been really bad at it. Like I got to just figure out some way to do it better. <laughs> yeah. And like that day I was throwing like one, eight fives around the bag. And, and so I called JP and I was like, Hey JP, like, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but, uh, I don't, I don't think the pivot way is the best way to throw. And, and I was throwing great the other way. And so that's what I'm going to do from now on. <laughs> and he told me, he was like, he was like, you know what? You just became a man because <laughs> I knew, I knew that you would, you would grow up when you told me to F off. <laughs> <laughs> so basically his whole lesson was like, you know, once you, once you take your career into your own hands, that's when you become a man. Mm -hmm. And so I mean, ever since then, he, he like, there was like a difference in the way he almost like treated me. It was more of like, now I've like become a man rather than I'm like a kid that's, you know, just listening to who, you know, going with the flow, doing whatever. So that's kind of the moral of the story is just think, take, take control of your own career. I think that's such great advice because, you know, kids grow up and think that like coaches, we don't have all the answers. I mean, we like to think we do, but we, we don't, you know, like we're not that sweet. We can't figure out every single thing you're doing, you know, and we through that's one thing that's been really enjoyable for me personally at this level is like the conversations that you can have with guys 
versus saying, okay, this is what you need to do. Like, go do this. This is what I think is going to help you. Now you're going to go do it. And whether it works or not, like you're going to do that. And so, like yeah, and said, it's not like, it's not about being disrespectful. You need no. to respect your coaches and, and listen to what they have to say. But if that doesn't make sense or it doesn't work, then you have to say, you have to be man enough to say like, Hey, this isn't what I want to be doing because of this, this, and this reasons. Mm -hmm. And here's what I'm going to do because of this, this, and this. And like, you go do it. 100% could not agree more. And I will, I'm going to tell you a story that I've used as an example because this was my moment when I knew you were becoming a man. And it was when you were probably like a junior in high school. <clears throat> okay. I'd gone to like a coach's clinic and you know, I was like 25 years old. I don't, I think you're, at the time you're like a, you're like a collection of the people that you'd been around. And then you're, you know, you get into coaching and you're trying to soak up as much information as possible. You know, like you're trying to learn and you're trying to read and you're just, you're finding every resource possible and, you know, we're working together and, I remember I saw this drill and I'm like, that's awesome. I don't know why, but it's awesome. And I love it. And we're going to do that. And <laughs> I think back, I'm like, this is the worst thing I've ever done with any player ever in my whole life. But we were doing this drill and I had you like laying on your back on the grass and you were like catching balls that I was dropping over the top of you. And you like, we got done. And I just remember you kind of go, so what does that do? And I didn't have an answer. I like, I did not, I couldn't remember like what the reason was for the drill that I saw, but I didn't have an answer. And I was so flustered about it. I'm like, God, dude, I don't know. I, I don't, we're not going to do that anymore. And we did it one time. I just remember you stood up and you go, so what does that do? That's great. It's <laughs> terrible. My worst moment ever. <laughs> oh, uh. man. Hey, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. And I, I wish you the absolute best of luck and, and uh, really look forward to continuing to watch you this year. Yeah, thanks, Kev. Thanks for having uh, me on. Yeah, buddy. Talk soon.